Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. It is the week of February 8th, and we've got a whole bunch of bike racing and tech to talk about. Got most of the usual crew with us here today. Got Abby and Ronan and Shoddy and Dane. No James today. James is working on some other projects at the moment. But as always, got a great show for you. Before we get into today's episode, Shoddy, what are we learning about Continental this week? We are going to learn about Continental Gator Skin Hard Shell. Right, okay, personally, growing up in the UK, I know it's a pain in the neck to change a flat tyre when you can barely feel your fingers. And this is where the Continental Gator Skin Hard Shells come into play. Now, these play off the classic Continental Gator Skins. They have an extra layer of puncture protection, perfect for this time of year. If you don't have to deal with the elements, well, they're perfect for getting off-road, out and about on the rougher stuff, if you're into that sort of thing. The Gator Skins are Continental's, one of Continental's classic tyres. It comes in a range of 23mm up to chunky 32s in both 650B, 26-inch and 27. Another great quality of the Gator Skins is that they won't break the bank. Now, I know about this because these used to be, well, still are the tyre choice when I was um, doing plenty of training back up in the north, west of the UK, where the weather is absolutely filthy. I think they come in somewhere around about the $34, €28 Euro mark. But yeah, these these tyres are the ones that I... not. I put hand on that here. I used to use all the time when I was growing up in the UK. Racing, training in the winter, and up there, oh, it's terrible. Potholes galore, dirty old roads. I love that they come in a 32 now. I was not actually, I was not fully aware that they came in a 32 and a 650 and a 26 inch. They come in literally every possible tire size you could basically want. A 32 mil gator skin hard shell is actually probably a pretty decent, like, of winter not quite gravel tire but terrible roads you know dirt roads stuff like that kind of kind of a halfway in between tire i might have to get myself a pair of those but what what i like about them is that they go come down all to 23 millimeters because i i know in the in the uk at least winter bikes are generally the old hack bikes rim brake bikes so you can't really fit too big a tire on there and you want a good tire to see you through the winter, so 23 mil, 25 mil at most for like your old old bikes with the rim brakes is all it's going to matter. So yeah, that's I think they're the perfect choice for for winter riding up there. Don't know about the rest of the world. You got to fit them inside fenders or mudguards. Heck yeah! Tell us about it, mate. I've been there before. <laughs> I haven't. I'm just I'm, I'm relying on your expertise because I live in Colorado where it doesn't rain. Sorry, Shelby. Uh, Rowan will know all about the wet weather up in the north. <laughs> they do water the roads sometimes, though. They do. They do, actually. They they we, they drive trucks around and spray the roads here. That's how dry it is. Uh, otherwise, they get all dusty and horrible. So that's the Colorado way. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode and this entire year. We'll be telling you more about Conti throughout the year now on with the show as always we're going to kick off with a bit of news we've got etoile de Bessege, we've got super tuck 
news which popped up next last week some uci rule updates there's some other rule updates we're going to talk about we're also going to talk about a video that was posted by israel startup nation this morning monday morning uh it's a chris Froome bike review and he he kind of gets into it doesn't like disc brakes very much we're going to talk about that and then this week's nerd alert is an interview with Robert Chung on Zwift cheating, another hot topic at the moment. Ronan, I believe you conducted that interview. We're going to dig into, well, the methods of Zwift cheating and how those cheaters are caught. But let's start with the news. Dane, where are we kicking off? Etoile de Bessege? Yeah, let's talk Etoile de Bessege first. Uh, and... I think we can we can toss to Abby on that one because Abby did a little race report writing, uh, watching the race over the last few days, uh, and it was a pretty interesting Etoile de Bessèche. This is not a race that tends to be the biggest of races, uh, but this season with so many races canceled, uh, it's, it sort of funneled a bunch of really good riders into this five-day race in France, uh, and and that meant that there were a lot of big names there, uh, which meant for a good uh, five days of racing. Yeah, it, it seemed like a pretty insane race for a race that is usually relatively low-key season opener for smaller teams. Ronan, you've done it, right? <laughs> what are you saying about our team? Our team is a big team. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I've I've done the twelve besides three times, and looking at the start list this year, it was genuinely terrifying to see the amount of World Tour teams that were at the twelve de Passage. Having done it with a nice, healthy mixture of World Tour, Pro Conti, and Continental teams, it was savage. But to see the amount of World Tour riders this year, just, yeah, I am so glad I was not there. You didn't want to go up against Filippo Ghana and... No, thank you. No. Uh, although, in fairness, the last time I did it, I had to go up against Ricardo Rico, which was possibly <laughs> worse. <laughs> That's way worse. It, it was, like... A pretty incredible start list for the race this year. There was a ton of big names that were there, and especially stage three, it got pretty crazy. There was a breakaway of 17 riders that went away mid-race that was pushed forward by Egon Bernal. He was really the most aggressive rider in the race. Kwiatkowski was in that breakaway along with Nils Pollitt, Greg Van Avermaet, uh, Philip Gilbert, Tim Wellen, so like a lot of big names were in that breakaway. Sounds like a pretty slow breakaway. A very yeah. slow breakaway, uh, which actually yeah. makes it even more impressive that Tim Wellens was able to get off the front in the final 10 kilometers and and win. Um, and he kept the lead all the way to the end of the race, um, even after Philip Ogana won the final two stages. I was very pleased to see, well, a realization of what Dave Brailsford talked about first on this very podcast, the fact that Ineos is going to race, well, in a more interesting way this year. He did promise that, and I think a lot of people, you know, we wrote up a story on it. It was on the the, the one of the Rafa Roadmap pod, podcasts that we did early in the year. I think a lot of people kind of questioned whether that was actually going to be the case, and I think you can still question whether that'll actually be the case at something like the Tour de France. That's the Etoile de Passage is not quite the Tour de France, but that team kind of threw everything at this race uh, in a way that we wouldn't maybe normally see from Ineos. It was really interesting. I mean, one that the most aggressive rider effectively on stage three was Bernal. And another thing that's interesting about um, Ineos is the news that broke today, Monday, that 
Steve Cummings is going to be a director on the team and he's known for his aggressive style of writing. So clearly they are putting their money where their mouth is as far as switching up the way that they're racing and it didn't work out for them. I mean, Tim Wellens won the whole thing, but Philip Agana won two stages. And if they're starting the season riding this way and they do intend to continue riding this way, you know, they need the practice to be able to figure out (laughs) (laughs) how exactly trees like this and they're doing it now yeah i mean the way that brailsford kind of framed it was you know he was a huge bike racing fan uh obviously uh as a young man and and you know as someone who went over to to belgium to race and things like that and the way that he framed it was i want to create a team that i would have cheered for as a 19 year old who was like you know making the step to belgium to go race on the continent things like that which we have two members of our podcast here who have done similar things he wanted to create a team that, you know, that he could cheer for. And that's a very different team than the team he created over the last five, ten years. So I'm I'm excited about this. If if it continues, and I am still not convinced that it will continue with the Grand Tours, really. If it continues, it could it could be the most exciting team of the entire year because they have the firepower to do this at almost every race that they enter the entire season if they want to. The fact that Tim Wellens was able to walk away with the overall victory, even after Ghana, you know, went for his solo attack on stage four and won the time trial. And there were so many big names at this race. The fact that Tim Wellens won the overall of a race that, you know, we wouldn't be talking about last year. It's like two to one that like nobody, nobody would have really known about that race or they knew that it existed but you know it wasn't a race that we were all like holy moly we have to watch this race but this race was so exciting and um i mean it's like yeah 2020 all over again and congrats to tim wellens because that's pretty impressive i think it's just you know a confirmation as well that besage is the new majorca given that tim wellens would always win in majorca (laughs) every february and has now won in besage the 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 whole season's going to be weird and wonky again and we just need to kind of get used to that i think uh although we are we're coming up on on omloop pet newsblad quickly here we're what we're two week three weeks away now it's gonna it's gonna be upon us before we know it next on the list of news items dane a pile of uh UCI regulation updates come through last week one of which was was very much headline grabbing some others were actually maybe more important. Uh, let's talk through these a little bit. We got super tuck, but we've also got a bunch of other things. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, there were a number of, of new UCI regulations, protocols, whatever you want to call it, that will be pretty important uh, this season, next, moving forward, whatever. Uh, the one that was really the conversation started, though, uh, not not those things. It was that the UCI is going to apply its, its sort of... Uh, Provisions against dangerous, uh, dangerous things that you could do on a bike to both the throwing of bottles onto the road, which, you know, we saw last year when uh, Gary Thomas crashed out of the Tour de France or get, crashed out of the Giro d'Italia can be quite dangerous. Uh, and also uh, dangerous activities like descending while sitting on your top tube. Uh, and it was sort of, I don't know, it was like 15 paragraphs down more or less in this in this statement that they were going to uh uh, quote reinforce, I think was the wording they used. Uh, this this sort of anti-dangerous activities, you know, provision as 
being against these particular types of dangerous activities, which seems to mean, oh, we're going to start banning the super duck. Uh, it's going to take effect in April. Up until then, they're going to start, you know, educating riders so that it's not just out of nowhere that they're going to they're, they're going to be doing this. Um, but that seemed to be the gist of, hey, we're going to start banning the super duck, uh, which is something that has been quite a conversation starter over the past few seasons, as it has really caught on in the peloton. Uh, you know, Chris Froome famously did it uh, during the 2016 Tour de France, uh, stage eight, and it's been done by countless other riders over the last several years. He's not the only one. Um, and uh, yeah, as of April 1st, you will be facing a possible sanction if you do that. So I, I want to address real quick, there, there, was a, there was a study put out, I think it was Dr. Bert Blocken, who's, who's done a bunch of aerodynamic studies, uh, including the one related to coronavirus earlier this year. Now, there's a study put out as as to whether the super tuck was actually faster, and it didn't show it was all that much faster. This doesn't really jive with uh, my personal experience. I don't know about you guys, but uh, like I've done this before next to people who weren't doing it, and you go significantly faster. So there's there's kind of no question in my mind that this is an effective means of going down a hill faster. I'm a little bit surprised that the UCI has stepped in on this particular measure. Uh, because we haven't actually seen any issues really yet. It hasn't really caused any crashes that I'm aware of. But then again, if it did cause a crash sometime this season, we would be yelling at the UCI for not dealing with it beforehand. So I actually kind of appreciate that the UCI is taking a bit of a proactive stance on some of this stuff versus a reactive stance. I still think that there's a pile of things that are more important and more dangerous that the UCI, UCI should be dealing with. Uh, but I'm, I think on the whole, kind of okay with the ban of the Super Tuck. Uh, it is sketchy. It is, you know, getting in and out of it is is sketchy. Uh, it can cause crashes. So why not just get rid of it? Holy crap, I agree with Kaylee for once. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't add anything to the sport. Like, what does it add to the sport? It adds sort of like stupid speed. looking pedaling like this room speed, in 2016 which is what cycling is you know all about you know, Abby, there are there the are things fastest there are things that add speed to the sport that are not allowed <laughs> yeah you can't run aero bars on regular road stages either because they're sketchy and stupid if what they're trying to do is make it so you know the pros aren't super tucking on the tv so fans think oh i'm gonna try that and go and do it on their home roads because they you know want to be cool if that's the reason but like these are professional riders who know how to ride their bikes they aren't gonna crash trying to get out of a super tuck there's a lot more things that the uci could be doing <laughs> with their time than banning the super tuck I, if i remember that study right it it showed that the super tuck was faster than a normal descending position yeah but not the fastest position which was actually if i remember right pantani's over the back wheel, yeah, position. like stomach on this on the saddle kind of thing, or chest on the saddle. Yeah, 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 which would be a lot more dangerous. Um, you have no weight over the front wheel then, which is really sketchy. My fear would be that we're almost getting into sort of micro management here, and that you can do this and you can't do that, and you you know at at what point does does it become that you're only allowed to sit or stand on your bike, and that that you know I I think professional riders have have we've never seen a huge accident as a result of the super tuck uh, i'm in favor of keeping it um but i can see why it has been why it has been outlawed and um yeah 
I get the impression that it's not so much the super took as a whole, but like that position that Froome takes where they're well over the front wheel, where they're not actually sitting on the top tube, they're more huddled over the stem. It, that's the dangerous one. The super took on when you sort of sat on, on top of the top tube with your ass underneath the saddle. That doesn't seem too unsafe. Over the front end seems ridiculously unsafe. So, yeah, banning it for the pros is stupid. So what they really should be doing is banning it for the amateurs <laughs> along and 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 like having a 140 centimetre, 140, 140 millimetre stem, you've only allowed one of them once you turn professional in Belgium. <laughs> so, so once you turn a professional, you're allowed to do the super tuck and have a stupidly long stem. Yeah, so yeah, there's a bunch of things that they should be addressing and there are a bunch of other things in that document that they do address. I, I just I don't think the super tuck adds a whole lot to the sport. Yeah, it makes you go a little bit faster. If everyone does it, then everyone just goes the same speed. It's kind of like aero helmets. Like, why are we all making our heads really hot just so that we can all go the same speed as we were going relative to each other? Anyway, I don't think it adds. Uh, the only thing that I can the only the only sort of benefit I can see is yes, there are some really bad descenders still in the pro peloton. Ilner Zacharin. <laughs> I was going to say, if Zacharin does the super <laughs> tuck, we might all lose 10 years off our lives. Exactly. And, and so, like, you know, the, it is a skill set and a skill set that you can use to gain advantage in a bike race. And so, therefore, if it's something that you learn to do and you can get good at and therefore do better in a bike race, that that's what sport is, right? And so, in, there, in that way, I'm kind of in favor of it. But I just – everyone does it. Everyone – it's all sort of level playing field. <laughs> I actually have trouble caring too much about this in either direction. I don't I don't really I don't really see the benefit of banning it. I also don't really see any like compelling reason to keep it in the sport other than it just you just go a little bit faster downhills. And you you say though that everybody does it, but I think that's one of the key things in that the professional riders seem to have or at least i have never seen a professional rider in the middle of a peloton try to adopt the super top position it's only the rider on the very front of the the bunch and i think if if we've seen riders super talking in the middle of a bunch <laughs> then yeah by all means get it banned get it out of there uh you know but there's been a certain level of understanding there that it's only really the rider on the front of a group that that should be doing this and and that's why i think we haven't really ever seen any huge accidents as a result as well is that it comes with its own sort of health warning that you do this at your own risk and you only do it on the front where you're you're unlikely to be chopped up by another rider or something yeah because that's the problem with it right is you can't react to anything when you're down there like you mm -hmm. can't you can't hop over a hole you can't you can't do anything really you're sort of you're in the wrong position you don't you don't have the natural suspension of your of your elbows and your knees that you would normally have when you're descending to move the bike around uh so that's I, like i said I, I sort of struggled to care really too much in either direction here i did find the insane debate on twitter once we posted this to be quite funny uh <laughs> and i agree that the uci should be really focused on about a hundred other things ahead of this but i i I'm not going to get angry about the fact that they've banned it. But let's be honest. Let's keep cycling beautiful because it looks ugly. So do you see how you're doing a good thing there? They're keeping it, keeping the sport looking lovely by not having the super tuck, and they're keeping the sport looking lovely by not having too long a socks. So for me, keep up the good work, UCA. <laughs> so they need to ban the super tuck and then also let riders ride without helmets again because that looked way cooler. 
Yeah, like proper little caps on their heads. Yeah. Yeah, a little cap, maybe some hair flown in the wind. Yeah, oh, some sunglasses. Don't, don't get me so long as the Hell's 500, don't ban the Super Tuck. That's okay. <laughs> Rona needs it for his Everesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on from this. Uh, send us a note. What do you think about Super Tuck? If you haven't already commented on the story, which has 10 bajillion comments, or on our Twitter feed, which has 10 bajillion comments, send us a message. Dane, there are some other sort of more consequential things that came out of this particular list. Can we run through them real quick? Yeah, although now I'm thinking about UCI rules on, uh, you know, banning slicing bits off your handlebars. Uh, but uh, I don't think we've seen anything from that yet. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if pros start doing that more. Uh, but there, yeah, there were actually quite a few pretty consequential changes uh, to the to the rules. First of all, there were some new safety rules. There's some new um, uh, approaches, not just rules. I mean, there's there's a new uh, individual who will be tasked with kind of overseeing safety things, uh, safety manager at the UCI, who's going to kind of oversee stuff. He's going to have the the you know the supervision role. Uh, there is going to be a review of uh, finish line barricades. So the the barriers that uh, you know last year at the Tour of Poland, I think, basically exploded. I, I think those are what really led to this. Uh, decision to start coming up with standards for what can and can't uh, fly when it comes to, uh, well, okay, what can and can't work when it comes to uh, roadside barriers. Uh, and I think they're going to have that implemented by 2022. So that was a big, big thing after last year's big crash. Hopefully there will be something this uh, next coming season that looks a lot better uh, from here on out than those barriers did in Poland, because that, that should not happen. Um, and there were, yeah, a couple of other changes as well uh, in terms of uh, throwing away trash, et cetera, um, with, with uh, the Peloton. There were also sort of not really safety regulations, but just other you know, updates that the UCI provided all in this one giant press release, uh, including the fact that there will be one extra team allowed at all three Grand Tours this year. Uh, this was something that the organizers of the three Grand Tours had requested. Uh, they have to now invite Alpes and Fenix this year because that team, uh, the Matthew Vanderpool team, uh, was the highest ranked pro team, second division team last year. That meant one fewer uh, sort of same country national uh, uh, pro team for the three Grand Tours, which put them in a real bind. Now they can at least invite three of their four uh, teams at most with a, with a new addition. Remember when not that long ago they decreased the number of teams at the Tour de France for safety reasons? <laughs> and now Indeed. they're like, oh, Never mind. There's not enough French Pro Conti teams in the Tour de France. We need to allow another French Pro Conti team into the Tour de France and allow another Italian Pro Conti team into the Giro. I've kind of reversed that. I mean, that that rule never made any sense to me either. Like, like how, how is 175 versus 185? Right? Like, how is that any <laughs> any different in safety? There's no there's no no effective change there whatsoever but it's still kind of funny that they've reversed themselves within about two years on that particular decision this move is definitely for the safety of the french italian and spanish pro teams which may or may yes. not have ceased to exist without a without a grand tour to ride although unfortunately for them still not enough space for all of the uh potential teams that might have gone the, the you know the, the national uh the teams from the home nation uh so We'll see, you know, the, the Tour de France actually immediately announced the uh, the selection of teams right after this UCI press release. 
um, which was kind of amusing. Uh, usually they, I would have expected a little more fanfare, but uh, maybe they probably didn't expect there to be so much fanfare around something else in the in the UCI's press release, the, the super tech stuff. Uh, yeah, so that's a big deal if you're a second division rider. Uh, Nairo Quintana, obviously pretty pleased with this. He's hoping to get into the Giro d'Italia this year uh, for Arkea Samsic, which would be, again, that would be another spot not going to an Italian pro team. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but yeah, so quite a few updates from the UCI in this one press release. Uh, actually, some interesting things and some, you know, some things that are going to have a pretty big impact, which is not always what you get from UCI press releases. I, I as a sort of like final thought on the UCI rules and regulations, and we, we, we kind of make fun of them for like the sock height thing and the super tuck thing and sort of stepping into places where maybe they don't need to step into. But this is actually the purpose of a governing body, right? Like all the other things that the UCI tries to do, organize races and all these other things, that is not the remit of a of a international governing body. International governing body is designed to make the rules and enforce them. That is what they really should be doing. And so I think that in some ways you kind of have to applaud this. Like, yes, they're stepping into the things that they need to be stepping into, finish line barriers and things like that. This is what they're designed to do. Uh, it can feel small and it can feel inconsequential, but it's, it's precisely what a governing body is supposed to be paying attention to. So minor, minimal kudos to the UCI for the list of things that they've done in this particular press release and hope to do i mean that's the other thing was we, we kudos and but also you know we're, we're sort of going to be waiting to see will the barriers actually be safer next year uh because they're going to come up with new standards what's that mean i mean we've we've heard about course design reviews for years and years and and there are still really unsafe courses uh, quite often that riders complain about uh so hopefully this will actually lead to you know positive change we'll see fingers crossed uh there was some other racing that has happened over the past couple of days as well, not just in France, also in Australia. The Australian Road Nationals went on over the past several days, and uh, we had a reporter at a bike race, which sounds crazy, but Whoa. that we could do that because you know we have people who live in Australia where you can go to bike races. You actually cover them in person, as crazy as that sounds. Wild. Yeah. Should we hear from uh, Matt? We should. I think we should hear from Matt on this. Right, so Matt, you were on the ground at Aussie Nationals. How was that? Yeah, it was a pretty amazing week, actually. I think the main feeling wandering around there was just a real sense of relief that there was actually some bike racing going on, um, that racing the people who come out and watch, and from the riders as well, just relief that they'd be able to actually pin a number on and get some racing under their belt after what's been a pretty crazy year for a lot of people. Yeah, and the the vibe seems like there was... A good amount of people there, but you guys are in a completely different world COVID-wise than we are here in Europe. Yeah, that's right. So we've probably got a couple of new cases a day in Australia at the most. You've got one or two in Victoria at the moment. So doing pretty well, all things considered. But there was still a really strong effort from Oz Cycling, um, the governing body, to make sure that the event was as COVID-safe as possible. So everywhere you looked, there was hand sanitizer, there was limited numbers on the main climb of the road race. There was QR codes, people to check in and just this real effort to make sure that people distance as much as possible. Not that people seem to follow that all that much, but there was definitely an effort made from the organizers to try and do what they could to make it as safe as possible. 
while still putting on a really exciting bike race. Yeah, it was an amazing week, actually. Some very, very impressive performances. Um, the Sunday in particular, the the women's and then men's road races is always the highlight of the weekend, but um, even more so this year. The women's road race was great. Um, Sarah Roy will be a very popular and deserving uh, Australian champion this year. She's ridden in the service of others for so many years, and um, this year she'll get a chance to to wear the green and gold, which I know she'll enjoy very much. Um, that was a pretty cool race. She won that from the break. But the race of the week really was the, the men's road race. Um, it was just quite dizzying, actually. There was a bunch of us journos at the end of the race sitting around trying to piece together what had happened during the race, and there was just so many attacks and so many groups coming together and breaking apart, and it was hard to keep a tra- keep track of everything that was going on. But um, Cameron Meyer, who's last year's champion, you might remember, he, uh, he was dropped on the second last lap and then somehow managed to fight his way back to the front group with 5Ks to go. He had a massive assist from Luke Durbridge, who um, just an absolute animal of a bike rider, particularly in January, it seems, where he just rides out of his skin for others. And um, yeah, just dragged Maya back to the bunch over and over again to the point where it came down to a sprint uh, and Maya managed to pip Kel O'Brien on the line um, in a really quite amazing finish that we didn't know how the race was going to end until the last, you know, 30 centimeters of the race. It was a... Uh, quite a way to to wind out the weekend. And it sounds like the Australian-based teams that weren't that aren't world tour teams, so bike exchange were pretty aggressive in the races. Yeah, they were. The standout performer of the week for sure was a local team called Inform and uh they had they went 1 2 3 in the men's under 23 road race. They went uh 1 and 3 in the elite men's time trial with a 20-year-old and a 22-year-old. Um Luke Plapp was the guy that won that. Kel O'Brien was the guy who came third. He also came second in the road race. Um it was brilliant all day in the early move. He was attacking all day. He launched a late attack. He you know started the sprint as well and was only just pipped on the line by Maya. So that informed team they had an exceptional week taking it to the, you know, the bigger firepower of the World Tour team. And, um, yeah, they won a lot of hearts this week for sure. Did it make up for the kind of lack of the Aussie World Tour calendar slash the, the big races that we see down in Australia to have a little bit of real racing? Because it was really a huge bummer for Australia to not have the tour down under and Cadell's this year. Yeah, that's right. And also the sun tour and to a lesser extent, the Bay crits as well. Like the summer was really slashed and we were actually quite lucky in the end that the nationals got to go ahead and that TDU got to go ahead in a kind of domestic form where that was some great racing as well. And nationals, even though it was a leaner field than we've seen in recent years, because so many of the top names stayed in Europe or weren't able to get there. Um, it was kind of a leaner field, but the racing was just incredible. As you said, the the smaller teams were there taking it up. And I think, as I said at the start, the the real vibe from everyone at the the week was just this sense of like, how good is this to be able to watch some bike racing again? It's been such a tough year and um, to be able to get out and watch bike racing and bike racing as good as that was, uh, was actually quite a treat and quite a privilege to report on. So yeah, there's lots to love about it. All right, so in place of 
this week's formal debate. We were instead going to be a less formal debate. We've got the four of us here, and we're going to now watch and respond to this video that Chris Froome and his Israel Startup Nation team put out that is called Chris Reviews the Factor Ostro Van, which is his bike, which is his new bike. Before we go any further, can we say there's no James here and no proper debate because it did look like he had won, but he's running scared because, well, <laughs> I think he feels guilty. James will be back next week and we'll have the formal debate. We're going to watch this video. This is the first time for me in 11 years of racing that I'm going to be on a, on a different bike brand. So there are a lot of big changes for me, biggest of which is getting onto disc brakes for the first time. This bike, as you see it here, is weighing just under seven kilos. And I think with a bit of, bit of tinkering, we could probably get it down to the legal race limit of 6.8 kilos, which is every, every bike rider's dream pretty much. Our bike is kitted out with the 30 black ink wheels, four III power meters, Full Shimano Dura Ace group set. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Right, let's just break this apart a minute. He's banging on about bike weights, yeah? He was on a Pinarello last year. That team had to use lightweights to get the bikes down to UCI legal limits. So I don't know what he's complaining about. I don't think he's complaining yet. I think he's I think he's pleased thus far. He did I think I think he said the name of his power meter wrong. I think it's just four I. I don't think it's four I I I. Even though that's how it's written. It's at least it's at least four I I I I. Yeah. Four A's. He's miss he's either missing an I or he's got too many I's. Unclear as of yet, but somebody should have caught that one. And Swiss stop rotors and discs. We've also got the ceramic speed uh, bottom bracket and rear derailleur. For me personally, I've been wanting to get onto the ceramic speed for quite some time now, especially when I'm running uh, my osymmetric chain rings. I think having a, a longer rear derailleur cage will help, help stabilize the chain a little bit more, especially when it's got obviously that, that oval action, the chain is, is bouncing up and down all the time. This has been something I've been wanting to ride for a while now. I feel like the uh, the non-stock rear pulleys on his derailleur are actually going to do the opposite effect of what he's hoping for, which is generally they shift worse. And then if you combine them with osymmetric train rings, you're going to just have bad front shifting and bad rear shifting. Yeah, and perhaps that's why he has wanted to do it for a while, but from the sounds of it, hasn't been allowed <laughs> to, to do it for a while. So We'll see whether that... Yeah, I, th I think the same as you. Then. Yeah, we'll see whether that one actually happens. So let, let's just... So far, so far, we've just got to realise that he might not know everything technical about his bike. He might not be the most clued up. So let's see what else he's got to say. <laughs> During this sort of winter training period, um, we, we thought it would be the best idea to go back to round rings just while I'm also going through this rehab phase as well. I had a sneaky suspicion that the, the osymmetric chain rings were probably hiding my weakness a little bit. So... Going back onto round rings for the time being, but I'm sure once racing starts again at some point, I'll, I'll make the switch back onto osymmetrics again. It is known that the osymmetrics make it very difficult for parameters to be as accurate as they are with round rings. So perhaps it is playing with some of the, the data. Uh, that's, I, I, I was taking that as a different way of saying like the osymmetric rings were sort of like hiding his... His, in, his injuries... His injury, yeah, hiding his injuries from himself, not not necessarily in power data, but in just sort of like 
how the pedal stroke felt. In which case it wouldn't matter because he would still be going fast. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. All right, we'll, we'll move on from that. Disc brakes. Here, Here we go. Here we go. The good stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> I'm not 100% sold on them yet myself. Um, I've been using them for the last last couple months. Performance-wise, they're great. I mean, always always stop when I need to stop. Dry, wet. They work. They do the job. They do what they're meant to do. The downsides to disc brakes: the constant rubbing, the potential for mechanicals, the overheating, the discs becoming a bit warped when when you're on a descent for longer than sort of five ten minutes of constant braking. Personally, I just don't think the technology is quite where it needs to be yet for road cycling. I think that the distance between the the disc and the rotors is still just too narrow. So you're going to get that rubbing. You're going to get one piston that fires more than another. You're going to you're going to get these little issues. I don't think the pistons quite retract. Chris, 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 Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I have been an advocate for the rim brakes for as long as I haven't had disc brake bikes <laughs> and, and, and haven't had some bikes in for review lately, especially in wet weather that we have here at the moment, I am completely converted now to disc brakes. So, uh, and I will, ag- I will agree that the technology is probably going to improve further over the next few years. Well, everything but does. But I'm still converted right now. Yeah. So a couple things here. So, He's actually kind of saying the exact same things that we've been saying, that James Wong's been saying, that the, you know the whole Cycling Tips tech department has been saying, that there are some kind of issues here, particularly for racing. They tend to make some noise. They tend to, well, the overheating thing. He's Chris Froome is not going to overheat uh, a set of modern disc brakes in all likelihood. Uh, he doesn't weigh hey, we don't know how much We don't know how much weight he's put on. Them cam- <laughs> cameras can deceive. That's might be very right. true. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Chunky like they, they make some tinging noises. They, you know, they 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 will. The rotors will sort of warp a little bit when they get super, super, super hot. So as Froom was saying, if you've been going downhill for five or ten minutes, they'll sort of warp a little bit. They'll often sort of work their way back. Uh, the bit he said about two about the pistons moving kind of separately uh, or differently that. It's not something that happens on a disc brake that's functioning properly. Uh, so that's not really a, a major concern. But, I, you know, on the whole here, he's kind of just reiterating the complaints that, for example, we've had about disc brakes for a long time. The gap in between the rotor and the pads is not big enough yet. And that's why you get, you have these just tiny, tiny little margins. And that's why you get all this noise, right? The end of the day, though, the noise, while annoying, is probably not really a performance issue so much. And so I think that's probably what he needs to kind of get past is as he's trying to race this bike that's going to make a bit more noise. He needs to get past the fact that he's going to hear a little ting, ting, ting. That's not actually taking any power or wattage away from him. What I want to know is that we know he's not been to the Israel Startup Nation team training camp. So that bike's been shipped to him. What mechanics set it up for him? Has he gone down the local bike shop in wherever it is, California, wherever he's staying at the moment, and had it built? Or has, has it turned up, he's put it together himself? Or has, does he have a personal mechanic on hand? Because that's the thing. Like, it's got to be put together correctly to work correctly. And then it's got to be looked after. Yeah, disc brakes have got to be looked after a little bit better than rim brakes. But like, I, I, oh, I'm just Chris... Come on, man. You're upsetting a lot of sponsors here. 
And a lot of people are like, yeah, good on him, but he's a big rider, big name. A lot of big companies are upset with him today, I bet you. And I, I think there's a, a possibility that that is at least partially the issue here and that, you know, if disc brakes aren't, are not set up perfectly, they will have a few issues with them. But, uh, and, uh, you know, if I think as, as people use disc brakes more and more and, and sort of get accustomed to setting them up right, then you suddenly realize, oh, here, that stops. If I bed them in properly, that stops the squealing noise. And if I, you know, have them set up right, then you're not going to have one pad rubbing when the other isn't. isn't. And, and you know, perhaps, as you say, Shotty, when he gets to the UAE tour, hopefully, um, and and gets one of the team bikes that's been set up by a team mechanic, he might have a different experience. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, did, did I hear earlier that he said he's running DT Swiss rotors? Did that? Did I? Did I mishear that? Swiss stop. Swiss Swiss stop, stop rotors. So no, no. Like Swiss stop makes great stuff, but generally with disc brakes, you do tend to want to run everything from a system. So if he's on Shimano disc brakes, he probably wants to run Shimano rotors, and that could also be part of his noise issues and things like that. Again. These are all complaints that we've had about disc brakes that I think are mostly valid, particularly actually for the amateur. For the professional, I think in general, his bike is going to work pretty well once he gets away from his little personal training camp in California. And as we said, to a actual training camp or to a race or whatever, he's going to have a bike that works pretty well. And I think he'll probably be able to get past most of these issues. Quite the way they're meant to be all the time. Quite often it will work on the stand, work uh, when, I'm, when, when the mechanic sorts it out. But then once you get onto the road, it's, it's a different story. I accept that's the, the direction the industry wants to go. We as bike riders are going to have to adapt, learn to, learn to use them. And I think if you're not on disc brakes already, it's only a matter of time until you're, you're made obsolete in a way and forced onto them. Chris Froome sounds like someone from our comment section. But how refreshing is that to hear a, a professional actually speak their it's mind? It's super re refreshing. And and one of the things that I think is probably important to note here is that I doubt Shimano is an actual sponsor of Israel Startup Nation. And so that's why he can kind of talk about disc brakes in this way. Notice he does not say anything negative about Factor, the the brand that is making his bike. Uh, but he does they he are complaints. He complains about the handlebars. He so does. Rob over at Factor's going to be right cheesed up. <laughs> he does complain a bit about the handlebars. But yeah, he's, it is, it's, it's very refreshing to hear just an honest take on how he is, is getting on with these disc brakes. I do think, as Ronan, as you said, I do think that he's going to end up seeing some of these issues fixed. Uh, you know, the, the piston retracting thing that he was just talking about, that's, that's not really normal and it isn't really, really shouldn't happen. Uh, Unless you're getting the brakes Unless. really hot, really, which granted he's in well, a sort of Malibu kind of area. There's some very steep descents right there. Maybe he could he could get some issues there. But I have plenty of disc brake bikes in at the moment that, or in over the last couple of months that have worked perfectly fine and have never made any noise. So it is possible. I wonder if there's some equipment choices. Again, those Swiss stop rotors possibly set up issues, possibly bleed issues. There's there's so many things that can go wrong with disc brakes uh, that will make them noisy and, and kind of annoying. Any one of those things could be happening to Chris Room right now. And that's part of the problem with discs. And that's part of why I kind of appreciate that he's been honest here and 
he's he's providing a, a accurate picture of what living with disc brakes is is currently like. I have done a lot of training camps in the area where he's riding, and the, there are a lot of really really long, steep descents. So that that is definitely, if that makes any difference, he is riding descents that are longer than ten minutes, and can have pretty steep sections. That certainly makes a difference. Makes a massive difference. Yeah. What What cracks me about this a little bit is we're never going to hear the end of it. When we put a review up about disc brakes and we say it's good, people can be like, you just, you've just got the uh, the big boys behind you telling you what to say. Chris Froome says it's like this. And what people have got to remember is that riding the Tour de France, riding professionally is completely different to riding like we ride a bike. And the styles, about, ride, the styles of riding, the, the where you venture, what you do, Disc brakes are awesome. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have gravel bikes for what they are now if we didn't have disc brakes, basically. And Very that true. is the, a massive market. So it's courses for horses, and also, yeah, there is some teething problems, but we'll come through them. So and is Chris from right? Is Chris from right about his hatred of disc brakes? The the industry forcing people on them. I mean, he's been forced on them by the fact that the uh, bike sponsor of his team doesn't make a rim brake road bike anymore. Uh, well, I, like, I just think that it really depends on your style of riding. And I know, you know, for for myself and other cyclists in the area here, some of us stick to small back roads with steep descents and really dirty, wet roads. And for me, on those roads, disc brakes are by far and away the better option. Whereas if you're sticking to main wider roads where you're not really having to use your brakes that often then the lighter setup of a run brake is probably the more aesthetically pleasing and aerodynamic and works perfectly well so the irony though is that chris Froome is in a place where disc brakes should be better right he's going down steep hills he's doing all these things that at least in my experience having ridden a lot of these same descents that he's riding right now Disc brakes are better there. You just have more control. You, yeah. They're, they're, oh yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, like, it's you know, it's it's hard to say if he's it's it's not really a a binary thing, is no. it? It's very much, yeah. Yeah, it all depends how you ride. Apparently, Chris Room doesn't want to ride disc brakes. So what I want to see, if they truly aren't sponsored by Shimano, I want to see him try out the other disc brake options and report back to us <laughs> on which he thinks is the best. <laughs> Chris Froome's new YouTube channel where he reviews <laughs> all sorts of things. I think that'd be fantastic. Well, all right. We're going to leave this here. We just wanted to respond to this controversial Chris Froome video. Uh, long story short, he's kind of right. He's kind of right about a lot of these things. Disc brakes have some issues. They make some noise. He's kind of wrong about some of it, too. Some of it's probably setup issues. Some of it is probably compatibility issues. He's a bit of 50-50 here. The good thing is, it doesn't really matter to the rest of us because none of us ride bikes like Chris Froome. To wrap up, this week's a little bit sort of non-standard debate. We're still going to have a poll. So, the poll this week, is Chris Froome right? Is Chris Froome right about disc brakes? Are disc brakes terrible or are disc brakes awesome? Go check out Cycling Tips on Twitter. It's where the poll will be. We've got it pinned to the top of our little Twitter thing. Go vote. Because this is going to determine the direction of the entire industry. This vote right here. This will determine whether disc brakes live or die. 
this vote. Hashtag threw me right. Hashtag <laughs> threw me wrong. <laughs> hashtag CT debates. That's what we throw them all under. Go look for that and you'll find this poll. Determine the future of the bike industry and the future of professional cycling. All right, our final segment of the day. We got the segment formerly known as Nerd Alert. Tech update. It's not that's not a particularly exciting name, but that's what we're going with for now. Send us your other ideas for the name of this particular segment. James, of course, is not on the episode today, but of course we've got Ronan in his place. Ronan, we're talking about Zwift cheating. And you spoke with Robert Chung, who, well, we spoke with Robert about a whole bunch of things. He's a he's an aero guru, really. He's a, the creator of the Chung method, uh, which helps you figure out your basically how aerodynamic you are just by riding around on normal roads uh, using power meters and things like that. What were you talking about uh, with him? Uh, well, we were we were talking about Zwift cheating, yeah, but you know, not the simple form of cheating of reducing your weight or your height which, you know, probably everybody on Zwift has lied about at some point. Uh, How dare you? <laughs> I, I I weigh only about 40, 47, 48 kilos these days. It's pretty impressive, I think. Snap. Yeah. I cut one, of, <laughs> cut one of my legs off. But we were, uh, we were talking more about the data manipulation that has uh, resulted in some writers receiving bans from, from Zwift. And, and the reason we spoke to... Robert was just that, well, you know, he, he works in the University of California at Berkeley. He is a demographer. Um, he is yeah, he's basically, uh, well, his job is to look at data um, and find the anomalies in it, I suppose. And that was a event or initially came about the uh, the Chung method for measuring CDA and that he thought the data he's normally used, used to working with is so corrupted that the data from a parameter was just like, yeah, it was it was was uh, perfect in, in his eyes. So he can easily spot um, manipulations or you know lies in in, in data sets, and and he can uh, uh, speak. Well, we, we didn't really want to get into creating a how-to guide on how to cheat on Zwift, so uh, we had to very be very careful. We didn't want a resource for cheaters. Um, but he was able to sort of point to a few things that make it very, very difficult to manipulate this data and 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 get away with it, so to speak. Let's hear from Robert Chung. Robert Chung, welcome to the <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for for joining us today. We're here to talk about. Uh, well, it's worth cheating of of all things. Uh, it's been a hot topic of of late. We've for years been tackling doping and cycling, and it seems like we're you know finally getting uh, getting ahead of that that um, problem. And now we've got a new form of cheating uh, entering the the world of of cycling sports. So uh, we have you on the show today. You are a demographer by profession. Um, I think cyclists will know you for being the inventor of the Chung method, even though you might not like to call it that. And uh, most interestingly, I suppose, for this t conversation is that you are a bit of a forensic data analyst. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think that that's probably how this all began. 
Tell me first of all, um, are you a fan of Zwift? I, I, I take it you you are a Zwifter. I'm a subscriber, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are fans. <laughs> Would you sit down to watch a Zwift race if you weren't on Zwift yourself? I prefer to watch real races, but I, I have lots of friends who do race in Zwift, so they take it seriously. And so uh, because they take it seriously, I guess I'm forced to. How widespread do you think cheating actually is on, on Zwift? Is there any way to, to gauge even? I think that's hard. Um, it's like crime. It's like any crime. You only see the crime that you can, where the victims are uh, uh, obvious or where, they're, or where the criminals are inept and get caught. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there can be a lot of, of mistakes where people, and the, the classic one is where you misstate your weight. And maybe you're, you've gotten a little heavier, but you haven't changed your weight. Now, is that cheating? I think in a, uh, in a strict sense, that's kind of cheating, but it's kind of unintentional cheating. Now, if you intentionally call yourself, you know, uh, describe yourself as a light female when you're a heavy guy, I, I don't think that's unintentional. I think that that's actually pretty close. I mean, that's pretty clearly cheating. Mm -hmm. But um, if you... You know, if your normal riding weight is 70 kilos and now you're 72, I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to be easy to catch. Uh, and I suppose that's one of, the, one of the questions I was going to have is some of the cheating that we've seen riders pulled up for, and we've, we've heard stories lately of, of riders being banned from Zwift for six months. And that's, is, is there any chance that the, the cheating that they've been accused of could be accidental in your opinion? So I've only heard of uh, these last four cases over the last six months. And these last four cases, uh, they're, they're not small. So I think that, you know, misstating your weight is 70 kilos when it's actually 70, when it's you've gained a couple of kilos and now you're actually 72. Number one, uh, that is going to be hard to detect. But on the other hand, that actually doesn't make much of a difference to the drag model. Let me back up just a second and say that we've long known how to go faster, and that is either to increase power or to reduce drag. And in Zwift, the only ways that you can reduce drag are to uh, either misstate your weight or else to get faster bikes or faster wheels. Or get shorter. Uh, or right, or get shorter. So you can, you know, lie about your physiology or you can, um, you can actually do something which is allowed, which is to buy faster equipment. A lot of the simplest ways that most people can think of to cheat are probably pretty easy to detect. So these last couple of cases where people were trying to inflate their power, uh, that turned out to be detectable. Mm -hmm. And I should say at this point, we're very conscious. We don't want to be creating a how-to guide for for Zwift cheating here, and that's perhaps why we might. Uh, we're we're hoping to you know expose as as much as possible, but we don't want to create a resource here for for Zwifters to figure out how to cheat. And with with that in mind, is there anything you think Zwift should be doing right now that 
could be could be making cheating more difficult or could be catching potential uh cheating that they're that they're missing at the moment well there are a couple of things that they do already which i think are really good and there are a couple of things that i don't know whether they're doing that if they weren't doing would be good and the two things that i think that they're doing right now that are really good uh is that at the highest level of racing they want you to use uh two different sources of uh of uh, data so you have to have a power meter on your bike and then you have to have one of the approved uh direct drive trainers and you have to get a data stream from both that's that's a a good thing and then the second thing and just to back up i think that the last four people who have been caught were caught because there was a discrepancy between those two i think this is true those two different data streams so there was an inconsistency between the power meter on the bike and the direct drive trainer uh, a second thing that they're doing which is also really good is that uh, they build up a history a longitudinal history of all the rides you've done uh, so they can spot whether or not there was a difference in your output for a particular ride and if uh for one particular ride things look odd then they have a bunch of information that lets them tell tell them that it's odd almost like the biological passport for for road professionals or or professional athletes and that's that looks at your data over a long period of time and looks for anomalies and what what you're saying here is what they're doing something similar with historical data for each rider right and just like the biological passport um one of the oddities about that is that you, you know this or maybe you don't know this but uh, the biological passport, you can be uh, a little aberrant because, you know, professional cyclists, they're pretty special. But what they're really looking for is a change in your parameters over time. So I guess, you know, if you cheated all the time, if you doped all the time and you never, you know, like they're the uh, surprise out of competition tests. The thing that you don't want is to be tested at a time when you weren't doping. <laughs> because then <laughs> all your other values would be off. So you have yeah. to dope all the time. Well, the same thing would happen here with uh, with Swift. You'd have to be cheating all the time. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know that that isn't just as simple as editing your your weight to be slightly lower than than what you that actually is. What you're talking about is if you're going to be cheating on Swift all the time that means going to these extreme lengths that we've seen some athletes try to do on Zwift. They, they have been caught but you know perhaps they were caught because they did it once and thought they could get away with it but actually to get away with that you need to go to those extreme lengths all the time every all time you're right yeah. every every damn time exactly which is pretty um un unrealistic to be able to to be able to do that you know i've said this before i think that clever motivated cheaters are clever and motivated and uh so you would have to be pretty damn clever and motivated in order to cheat every every single time <laughs> and to do it in the same way yeah yeah uh, so i think it's hard it would get pretty boring after a while i, am, I imagine <laughs> <laughs> and and then i guess uh at the very very highest levels of swift they can ask you to um go out and do a ride on the outside before they ask you to do that they there's actually the swift or the zada verification process uh which involves riding the three sisters loop on 
on Zwift, you have to do a, a live weigh-in with a video recording as well, and you have to do a live video recorded uh, measurement of your height. Um, but I was actually supposed to participate in the Zwift Premier League this year, uh, start, starting a few weeks ago. I know, <laughs> surprise, I, I was as surprised as you are there, but... Um, <laughs> I actually that actually didn't end up happening because you have to do a dual power source recording uh, as part of the verification process, and I was actually using three power sources for the recording. I had a crank-based power meter, pedal-based power meter, and then I had my actual direct drive turbo trainer. The issue was that the direct drive turbo trainer was always reading significantly higher than the other two power meters that were within one percent of each other. Can you sell that one to me? <laughs> it's 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 gonna go on eBay with uh, you know, so it'll go to the highest bidder. But basically, it it really inflated my my uh, wattage output, and I never even you know twice I I rode the three sisters loop to try and to try and verify myself. I did the whole spin down thing and all, but um, I, I eventually didn't even go through with the verification process because I just looked at it and said this is ridiculous. This this I can't race on this trainer. Um, they would have they would have flagged you immediately yeah yeah but but as assume for some writers that actually might be you know if if you're racing in the in the community races on Zwift, you don't necessarily have to go through the same process unless you get spotted for something so perhaps yeah i think that there's a difference between the community races uh of course in my case the d level races and <laughs> uh, and the races that you're probably doing, because I don't think anyone cares about the D's. <laughs> well, um, I, th- I think everybody in the D's would certainly care. <laughs> yeah, just just to clarify, when I get on Zwift now, I use my pedal based parameter and my crank based parameter as my as my power source while we try to resolve this issue with with my with my trainer. So, um, yeah, but it. it you don't want people riding into Zwift complaining about you. No, my my <laughs> my my data is is reliable. It can be uh, it 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 can be uh, checked out as as much as anybody wants. So, and and we know that because because you used your your power meters, your on bike power meters for your ever resting, and so yeah. we actually have a way to value to evaluate and validate <laughs> that they were correct. Yeah, I have power meter data going back. Uh, <laughs> Full ten years for anybody who wants to spend the time going through that. Um, getting back to to Zwift, like, do you think it can ever become a reputable form of competition? Given given that we've seen that my trainer can read high, you know, it, it's a relatively new trainer that I bought and. I didn't realize there was an issue with it until I tried to get myself verified. Given that you have other people who are maybe intentionally looking for ways to manipulate data or looking for trainers that read high, what's your thoughts on that? Is 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 rugby or is football are they reputable sports? Uh, so I think that they are mm-hmm. mostly. So I think that esports can be reputable, but I think that um, as I said before, you know, clever, motivated people. Clever, motivated, unethical people will still be unethical. But you can do a lot to eliminate those people. That's what I think. And I think uh, we might have got off topic a bit earlier, but was there a couple of things that you <laughs> Are thought... we on topic at any point? <laughs> is, there, is there a couple of things that you think Zwift could do to, to help that process of, of, of or uh, to help keep it reputable? 
Um, you know, in 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 other sports, we've seen interventions to try and you know uh, clean up certain issues. Or you know, if we even look at soccer, diving is a is a big issue, uh, and and they're you know they're they're looking at ways to try and stamp out that. Is there something you you were going to refer to as what could be doing? I I think that part of of why football pays attention to diving is because it's obvious and it it is so obvious that they have to do something about it. But I think that e, that there are other rules which are more subtle and that address different kinds of uh, of behavior. And so I think that if Zwift came out and without going into detail. If Zwift came out and said, we look at these general categories of things, and they don't say exactly what those general categories, what those, what they're doing, but they talk about uh, some of the things they could do, then uh, it makes it harder for people to think that they can get away with it. Yeah. I think you said before we started recording here that, you know, writers might think that they've find a way to cheat because they can't think of a way of detecting that cheating but that doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't detected a way to or find a way to detect that right you know i think that uh i run into this quite a bit you know uh where people can't think of a way to solve a problem and they think they're smart so they figure you can't figure out a way to solve the problem either but i think that um uh we were talking about something you know, concrete. And I don't know if Zwift actually does this, but if I were Zwift, I would do this. And that is I would buy one of every single trainer on the market, smart trainer on the market. I would that buy would be every... tough at the moment because there's very few available on the market, but yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I'd also buy uh, one mo- at least one model of every power meter on the market. And then in my lab, I would be looking for um, to back up uh, I should say that uh, power meters all have little fingerprints. And I haven't tried this with smart trainers, but I have to believe that smart trainers also have little oddball fingerprints in their data. And uh, if you try and manipulate a file from either the smart trainer or from your uh, on-bike power meter, those those manipulations would be detectable. Would be detectable to Zwift, but... Uh, that leads me to sort of another question. You, you'd mentioned that soccer is keen to stamp out diving because it's so obvious. Is there anything for the honest Swift user or Zwifter that that they could look to? Is there any warning signs that the Zwift community could look for? Is there anything that the Zwift community could do to help stamp out cheating amongst uh, amongst racers? I well, racers are whiners. <laughs> <laughs> we whine about <laughs> I can't argue with that. <laughs> um so I, I think that we would need a way to uh to separate and distinguish between uh my kind of whining <laughs> between whining from getting beat and whining yes. from actual yeah, yeah yes and of course since i always get beat then you know that's the kind of whining i do <laughs> so what we what we need is the winner to come out and say they're not happy with the person that finished second <laughs> is this some sort of, sort of transitivity property where <laughs> you only get to whine about the people you beat <laughs> uh well i think on 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 that note i think we'll uh wrap it up before we start uh giving away 
too many uh, <laughs> opportunities for for cheating or start uh, creating a uh, get, getting some minds thinking about how they how they might start uh, looking at cheating. So thank you, Robert, for your for your time today, and um, hopefully I'll see you and this is what fun talking with you. I was I have to say it was fun and actually an honor. I think I think this has been going on for about twenty minutes, the recording part of it, but I think we're up to about an hour and a half of of talking that we've we've had now in in preparation before and we find ourselves off topic quite a few times. So thank you. It was a it was likewise an honor. That's great. Thanks. Well, as I mentioned on was it last week's nerd alert podcast which is the full podcast not the segment again we've sorry we've confused everybody with the names of these things uh if you do want to get on cycling tips if you'd like to see your name up in lights uh cheating on zwift is a great way to do it because we have been keeping an eye on that zwift ban list and writing stories about the people who cheat so if you'd like all of your friends and family to know that you have no morals ethics scruples etc Go ahead and modify your Swift racing data and we'll write about you on cyclingtips.com. I think with that, it's time to wrap up today's episode. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, make sure that you send in your thoughts on Chris Froome at Disc Breaks. Make sure you vote in the poll. Make sure you don't cheat on Swift. Well, and if you do All cheat, don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, if you do cheat, do it cleverly and maybe just, like just drop just your weight. remember there's always or usually someone more clever right there. True. Somebody is going to catch you. So maybe just don't. All right. That is it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye, everybody.